Greetings from the humongous. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. I don't know what the hell's in there. It's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. This is the chopper! I'll have what she's having. Hey, Dr. Joe, no time for love! Hey, hey, Sal, how come the brothers on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place, you can do what you want to do. You are nothing but unorganized, grabastic pieces of amphibian shit! Society made me what I am. That's bullshit. Yeah, that's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. What did the pajamas look like? I don't know. They were jammies. They had Yodas and shit on them. It's such a fine line between stupid and clever. He sends one of yours to the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago All right, we're back. I'm Andre Shane. I'm Steve Haskin. And we are film-driven. We are back with another installment of our season-long coverage of the films of the 1980s. Correct. Amazing decade, Steve. We, uh, we, I feel like we've done several episodes now and yet only scratching the surface. That's right. Uh, I, th- I think the more I think about the 80s, the more I find it to be one of the greatest eras of film history. <laughs> and also not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also an era that was in many ways responsible for kind of a homogenization of Hollywood products, of of turning film into a blatant money-begging product that I think it is now. Yeah. To revolving everything around intellectual property and franchise films, something that we're definitely struggling from now. And to maybe creating an environment or at least giving birth to the environment that kind of marginalizes smaller films and... uh, and we're definitely there right now. So mixed feelings on the 80s, but man, that was the, the decade I, I, I fell in love in, with film, so I can't be too hard on it. And uh, my favorite genre, of course, as a, as a younger person, Steve, do you know what it is? I could guess. It's not sex comedy. Romantic comedies, no. <laughs> well, no. For me, as a you know, as a teenager in the '80s, it was action films. Yeah, and, I say uh, that's a big. All that lead-up sounds really unfun because today we're here to talk about action movies. You're talking about punching bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's it was a great decade for action cinema, and and I think we talked a little bit about intellectual property and so on and so forth, and obviously that flows naturally into our conversation than the action cinema. And, I, you know, I would argue that the 80s really kind of perfected action cinema. I don't think it was... I think you basically went through from some cool action films in the 70s, some definitely interesting stuff that they started doing in the 60s. And But if you go much further than that, I think action cinema is pretty much westerns in this country for exciting action yeah and in the 80s everything kind of came together they they started making sci-fi action flicks and yeah i'm not sure about perfection but it's certainly i mean one of the things in the 80s is it brought in a lot of techniques from lower budget action movies and started to use those techniques in like the big scale hollywood product and uh like yeah this like kung fu used to be this kind of you know, B, land of B pictures. Kung Fu was certainly around in the 70s, but then all of a sudden there's, 
you know, kind of martial arts become just part of fighting in mainstream movies? Well, for sure. I mean, martial arts became huge in the 70s, but the way they were integrated into a, pick, a Hollywood product was really came to the fore in the 80s. And yes. that's exactly what I mean. It's like all of these different elements of former filmmaking, you know, from the stunt work to a certain degree of special effects to incorporating uh, Asian martial arts specifically into the way action is staged and filmed. I, you know, I, I'm still saying perfected action scenes, <laughs> perfected. It, it, it became the best it could be. And since then has just been kind of regurgitated and maybe built upon. But really, it was as good as it, it, it was ever going to get in the 80s. That's, that's, my, that's my line, and I'm sticking with it. Fair enough, yeah. But uh, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to start with the MVP of 80s action, who's a little bit under the cover guy. Now, of course, we're going to talk about your Rambos and your diehards and all of that stuff. You can't avoid that. But for me, one of my favorite action people of the 80s was director Walter Hill. And Walter Hill sort of comes from this background of working, uh, you know, on, on movies like uh, The Wild Bunch and so forth. But he quickly moved into directing and made just a series of very good films in the 70s, starting with... Uh, Hard Time, starring Charles Bronson, which is an excellent kind of a boxing picture, really, is what it is. Uh, but in the 80s, Walter Hill, like, was kicking ass. Yeah. He came out of Warriors, which came out in 79, actually, so it doesn't really count. But that was a game changer, big action film. Nothing like that was seen. Gangs, these bizarre gangs in New York and the whole narrative that was really the remake of The Odyssey. It was weird, and it was extremely popular, and it was dangerous, yeah. It was dangerous. And, um, and then, of course, 1980 comes along, he makes a Western. And this is where the Western is called The Long Riders. And it's not that great a movie, but it's a great brother movie. Because the gimmick in it is it stars a set, several sets of Hollywood brothers. The Keach brothers, the Carradine brothers, the Guest brothers. Did you know that Christopher Guest has a brother and he... Honestly, an actor, and the two of them are in The Long Riders. It's a killer Western at a time when Western was dying. Sure. And, you know, Western was the bread and butter of Hollywood action filmmaking for years, for decades, right? And Western was dying in the, in the 70s. I mean, it, there was some great Westerns still being made in the 70s, but it was the last breath of the Western as a, as a viable genre. Uh, and uh, come the 80s, you know, The Long Riders was one of the Western's last gasps. It may come back. You never know. Yeah, well, well, Walter Hill's one of these guys who, like, even if the Westerns fell out of favor with the public, that Walter Hill grew up loving Westerns. So, you know, like, it's a very beloved genre to him. To him, it's a very beloved genre, and, and he's very good at it. And he's also good at adapting the conventions of the Western outside of the Western, which will which I'll talk about in a minute. But his next film was an absolute breakthrough hit called 48 Hours, starring Nick Nolte and, of course, and the young, the 19-year-old Eddie Murphy. His first movie, I think, right? I believe uh, yeah. it was his first movie. It, it seemed to have been made for him. Uh, I don't know if it actually was originally written for him. I doubt that it was. But, man, talk about a star-making performance. Comedy drama that movie had it all it was so good and it holds up great it's a great buddy movie it was 
really one of the first of those, you know, the buddy cop movie, you know, we're different kind of guys. Sure. Team up. Now, even though Eddie Murphy's character, Reggie, was not a cop, technically speaking, he was an investigator and was a partner with a main character who was an asshole racist cop. Uh, and that made for some great dialogue. Very, very memorable, hilarious scenes, and some killer action. 48 Hours, one of my favorite 80s action films. Yeah, and it's not, I mean, it's not the first cop, like, buddy cop movie, of course. That's a, a long-standing genre. But Is it? It's, uh, no, it's not the first one, but I'm no, saying I mean, it's, it's, it it's certainly the, the first, first big one in the 80s, though. For sure, for sure. I mean, 48 Hours kind of opened up that whole thing, and there were so many of these these buddy movies, and they're still being made. It's oh, like, yeah. it's, a, it's a very natural, It's a, it seems to be a natural format. You know, it's good for dialogue, there's arguments, conflict, and then everybody gets together to be on the same team. But 48 Hours is terrific, it holds up great, and uh, that gave Walter Hill a little license having a big hit like that, and yeah. his next film was just Stone Cold Crazy. It's called Streets of Fire. It doesn't have big stars in it. It stars Michael Pere, who was a TV guy, and, you know, who's kind of a low-rent Robert Mitchum type, mm -hmm. and uh, Willem Dafoe, who, of course, went on to greatness also, also, yeah. also stars a lot of great people but it is essentially an action musical and this is why this is one of the reasons i love walter hill so much is like walter hill he fucks around with genres you know sure. it is an action filled action packed musical it sort of has elements of both the western and the film noir it's got a lot of music it came out within incredibly monumentally successful soundtrack that was, I remember, played seemingly around the clock by MTV. Multiple videos for all from Streets of Fire. I'm certain Streets of Fire was actually not that big a hit, but it was an influential film. I think, like, the visuals of the movie and the way it was structured and the way it combined genres, similar to the skill with which he combined genres on 48 Hours, uh, just showed a very, very uh, skilled filmmaker. And uh, yeah, he, there was a couple of slowdowns there, but his next big action film was Red Heat in 1988 with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Another buddy cop movie, this one playing on the whole detente thing with the Soviet Union. So a little political, a lot of humor, a lot of action, not as good as 48 Hours. Jim Belushi. Jim Belushi just wasn't cutting it. I'm sorry. <laughs> but still, an entertaining film. That's, I think that's the title of Jim Belushi's biography. Not know. quite cutting Not it. Quite the Jim cutting. Belushi story. <laughs> uh, no. uh, Arnold, Arnold's good. Chicago's all owned. The movie uh, takes place in Chicago. So it's very much a Chicago film. And uh, I love it. I, I, I have a soft spot in my heart for, for uh, Red Heat. Uh, and again, a quintessential sort of genre cop movie. Cops from different sides of the tracks, shall we say. In this case, one is from Moscow and the other one is from Chicago. And they have to work together to stop some bad guys and they learn to understand. And yes, maybe a little bit love one another. <laughs> of course. And that's a beautiful message, Steve, that, uh, that can best be encapsulated in movies where dozens of people are shot dead. Sure. It's a good way to bond with uh, someone who's not quite like you. <laughs> well, speaking of bond, 
We mentioned that in some ways Bond created the modern franchise film, but it has also created the modern action film and the way the action was shot and the way practical stunts were used. And what makes uh, the 80s so great is they kind of follow that pattern with, with the action cinema. Action tends to be a little big. It tends to be over the top. Uh, not necessarily realistic in many ways, but exciting and kind of cathartic and uh, also fun. A lot of comedy. Again. Yes. That's a big hallmark of the action movies of the 80s to me is that, um, you know, we discussed this in some of our other episodes, that the 80s were bi- really big on kind of mixing tones and uh, often with not not making a big show of it. Like, you know, they wouldn't market a movie as like, okay, this this movie is some hybrid. Like, I'm not even sure if the term dramedy came into play until after the 80s, but, you know, the 80s almost... All the big action movies of the 80s have jokes. I mean, there, there are some exceptions, but certainly the biggest hits of the 80s, you know, it had a little humor and a little action. And uh, nobody was afraid of that. The, uh, the 80s were the, is it the first decade, Andre, which featured the action movie Quip, where someone, uh, your hero would take out a bad guy and then have a little witty line about it. Well, I mean, it's, it's certainly the, well... I mean, the Bond movies specialized in that. The quip was an invention. I guess that's, well, once again, we got to go yeah. back to yeah, it's Bond weird. land. It's the, weird. The Bond becomes this sort of a seminal element that, that, that kind of carries over all action cinema. But, uh, but, yeah, the quip became big, you know? I mean, like Sean Connery supposedly came up with some of the first quips just on his own. Like he yeah. would do this, he would kill some, some bad guy, quote, unquote, uh, in a horrible way and then make a joke about it. Uh, and the audience loved that, Steve. <laughs> loved yeah. it. So then why not Arnold doing the same thing, you know? The one in Commando, you know, where he's, you know, questioning a guy by dangling him over the balcony by his leg. <laughs> and then he lets him drop. Yeah. And when somebody says, hey, where's Luther? He says, I let them go. Yeah. <laughs> Hilarious, right? What's not, I mean, and all of that stuff, again, very, very... Uh, sort of made perfect in its own way by the films of the 80s. So let's let's talk about some of these uh, great action franchises. Some of them are franchises, some of them are not franchises. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. They're standalone movies that cannot be duplicated or really remade, honestly, because they've tried to remake some of them. Yeah, it, um, a lot of times it doesn't work when they try to recreate whatever magic you have between the premise of a movie and the star. Um, what comes to mind as, what jumps out at you as a quintessential action film or well, series of films? Uh, a, a quintessential 80s series of films, which uh, the centerpiece is a movie that I recently rewatched and don't particularly like, uh, are the Rambo movies. <laughs> uh, so Rambo is really interesting that uh, the first movie, of course, is just called First Blood. Um, I, I'm not sure if it's one of those movies that retroactively, like if you tried to buy the DVD, they might have... You know, retroactively inserted the word Rambo into it. Like, I don't know if you know Raiders of the Lost Ark is now called Indiana, Indiana Jones and the Raiders. Yeah, but so it was just called First Blood and uh, starts Sylvester Stallone. It was an early 80s movie. And uh, First Blood is actually really good. Uh, really good it's a, it's a really Todd good movie. Directed it. Um, you know, it certainly has action in there, but, it, you know, it's a movie about a Vietnam vet and uh, deals a lot with PTSD. Right. 
But then for the sequel, so the sequel is called Rambo colon First Blood Part 2. First Blood was successful. I First remember seeing it as a kid yes. in the movies. I remember thinking it was great. It had some good performances. Uh, Brian Dennehy, the late great, was in it. Uh, yeah, I don't know if they make sequels to something that I think you had to be at least a modest hit. Right. Like if you were a right. bomb, nobody makes Part 2. Right, right. But I don't think it was like a game changer. No, I think no, it was a it successful it w- film. It was a, and it was a good action film. It had a lot of that sort of survival you know against all odds thing Rambo was kind of weird he was a sociopath a little I mean maybe not a sociopath per se but maybe a psychopath well it was a good performance too because it was also like early Stallone you know we we weren't quite sure like what to make like the audience is like what's the deal with Stallone you know like he had all these roles through the 70s and you know like he's he's obviously a big muscly guy but is he also like a really good actor you know he made Rocky and you know, First he Blood is kind Rocky. of yeah. Well, he wrote Rocky, and but First Blood's kind of in the vein of Rocky, where he gives you know a very masculine, action-oriented performance. But there's also there's depths to it. Sure. You know, this. Sure. And, He's an interesting character. Go yeah, ahead. but then much like the '80s themselves, as the '80s go along, Stallone then became much broader, a more caricature of himself. And if any movie epitomizes this, and just like the bad part of. 80s action. It's Rambo, the second First Blood movie, which every... First Blood Part 2. First Blood Part 2. Why didn't they call it Second Blood? <laughs> you ever think about it? Like, what, wouldn't you just call it Second Blood? I mean, it's just a gimme. I don't know, Andre. Sometimes obvious ideas are staring you in the face. I don't... I mean, uh, I remember in the movie National Treasure, Nicolas Cage, and the preview goes, the dollar bill is trying to tell me something. And they made National Treasure 2, and I'm like, they missed the opportunity to have him go... The $2 bill's trying to tell me something. <laughs> I mean, it's staring right there. I don't know how, how much how, I can lead a horse to water. They, I mean, come but, on. Uh, so anyway, Ram- Rambo, Rambo, I watched. There was a time when I was, when I was a child, that movie came out way before I should have seen it. And some of my peers did see it. Not driving today, but it's just as dangerous sitting That's by right, this yeah, road yeah. because we are being passed by giant trucks at high speeds. So um, we're still risking our lives just in a different way. So the plot of First Blood Part Two, if you guys haven't seen it in a while, not a single element of it makes any sense at no, all. No, it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's stupid. Uh, he, John Rambo is recruited out of prison, prison to go take some pictures of what might be a POW camp. Pictures. Everything about it. Pictures, the recruiting out of prison, even the, even the camp. We're supposed to believe that Vietnam 20 years later has just roaming temporary camps yeah where it's vietnam the 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 government of vietnam is investing a lot of money in imprisoning leftover american prisoners from for 20 years from the vietnam war instead of like trading them for money or yeah i mean the idea is there it's some mix and again this is where the movie is also unclear the pow's are sometimes used as like slave labor but it's kind of implied they're mostly just there just for cruelty of like just a 20-year campaign of like, yeah, fuck you, GI. Which is, I mean, you gotta admire the dedication. That's a long time. That's a long time, man. They're they're really angry in those films, the Viet Cong. They're really fucking angry, man. And and there's always Russians around. Like I didn't realize, you know, like yes. Russians were still the main baddies in most of it's cinema. It's the hallmark of the 80s. Yeah, the hallmark of the 80s, even in James Bond films, and James Bond films tried to stay away from the Russian thing for most of the 70s, really, and really most of the 60s, if you think about it. But 
in the 80s, it was all Russians all the yep. time. There were Russians here, Russians there. Sometimes they were more evil than other times, but man, five Bond movies, there were Russians in all of them. Maybe except License to Kill. And anyway. there's, yeah, Russians somehow running secret Vietnamese camps in uh, Rambo. Yeah, yeah. But in the movie, you know, it, it climaxes with John Rambo just going on like an extended bloodbath. Yeah. And it's really... Um, gun, topless. That's another thing of the 80s is that it, the movies of the 70s, the action... You know, I'm not talking about the B movies of the 70s. Right. But the main Hollywood movies of the 70s that featured action, usually there was some sort of consequence. Like there sure. wasn't just... In the 80s, the body count shot through the roof. Right. That, <laughs> that uh, your protagonist in, could kill a thousand people and the, nobody... The no, heroes of an did. 80s action movie are the worst serial killers you've ever heard of. Mass like, just they are like Pol Pot level mass oh my murders. God. In many ca- and Rambo really is a right at the Rambo top Rambo is... High a, body count for John Rambo. Down. The second yes. and the third film, which is set in Afghanistan yes. fighting the Russians even more directly in that yeah. one. Uh, uh, so the movie's absurd. It's not particularly well made. As we point out, the action's not even that good, but it was a gigantic hit. I mean, like, that was like a monster worldwide smash mm-hmm. was the Rambo movie. Right. And and uh, what's funny is that second one where Rambo goes back to Vietnam to rescue American prisoners. Now, a lot of the 80s, like, like in the late 70s and 80s to some extent as well, they were, uh, you, you got the feeling like a more serious side of things. The country was trying to process the Vietnam War, right? Yeah. We were trying to come to grips with having a very, very failed military excursion that killed a lot of people, maimed a lot of people, caused a lot of divisions in the country, and generally is considered to be a defeat, rightly or wrongly, you know, yeah. in a true historical sense, but generally it's considered to be a defeat for the United States. And you felt like the 80s were trying to overcompensate for that defeat. Yeah, the 80s are certainly, I mean, I know the deer hunter was like 79. It's right. kind of the first big, you know, and there's mm-hmm. there was Apocalypse coming home. Now, of course, coming home Yeah, earlier. but the very late 70s they started to, but then the 80s is like there's a lot of Vietnam. And, you know, there's some movies, uh, you know, like Platoon, which reckon with like right. kind of like, the sadness, the moral loss of it. And then there's movies like Rambo where just kind of like, what if we could just redo it right? except kick ass? Uh, it's a fantasy. Well, it's a total fantasy, and also it's not a very original fantasy because a year before Rambo First Blood Part Two came out, uh, Missing in Action starring Chuck Norris, who also we have to mention because he was a huge at B action star. Sure. We have to say he's a B action star for, for sure, right? Because his film's a little lower budget and stuff like that. But Chuck Norris's Missing in Action came out a year before Rambo and Uncommon Valor came out two years before that. I don't know if you've seen that flick with another yeah. very recurring character from the 80s as far as an actor, a quintessential action actor, Patrick Swayze is in that film. and uh, But it stars really Gene Hackman, who's awesome. And that is... That's the plot of that movie. They go back to Vietnam to rescue some, a couple of guys who are still being held somewhere in Vietnam. Uncommon Valor is a, the best of those films. Uh-huh. And, but Missing in Action is pretty decent, and it's better than Rambo. It's a lot better than Rambo. Like, Rambo's laughable to me. I can't, like, yeah. take it seriously. See, and yet it's about a serious topic. And the, the fact that it was such a hit was maybe a little bit of indication where the audience was heading in the 1980s. Yeah. You know, where their heads were, which was 
maybe prone to slightly more simplistic interpretation of the world than we got in our 70s cinema, right? I think that's fair, yeah. Totally, but, uh, but yeah, Rambo, very quintessential. Of course, uh, Rocky films also, while we're talking about Stallone. Essentially action films, but also, you know, boxing films. And uh, I like Rocky films. I have a soft spot for the Rocky films, as you know. But we, we talked about Rocky IV a little bit. But Rocky III was this transition movie where, you know, the first two Rocky movies were set on planet Earth, you know, it's in Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, and Rocky Three is set in Los Angeles, not on planet Earth, apparently, because uh, it's completely outrageous and unrealistic. And, uh, and again, we're talking about taking an existing franchise and dumbing it way down, kind of cranking up the jingoistic element a little bit, and uh, also going over the top with the action. Yeah. So the boxing scene in Rocky Three looks nothing like actual boxing, whereas <laughs> at least in the first two Rocky movies, it seemed to somewhat resemble what boxing was like. In Rocky Three, it's gone through the roof. Yet, super enjoyable, super fun, very uh, very successful excursion for Sylvester Stallone. Well, one thing about the 80s, I don't know how much these things all influenced each other or just there was something in the air, but, you know, the 80s, as... We're discussing here, you know, the action got a little more um, over the top. Yeah. To name another Stallone film. <laughs> a little Excellent. more cartoonish. But similarly, the 80s was the rise of, uh, like, pro wrestling became big business in the 80s. Like, it was around before them, but, like, all this of the WWE mm-hmm, kind of made mm-hmm. it a huge deal. Right. It's the rise of... Uh, video games. Right. I mean, again, there were video arcades before the 80s, but certainly, like... 80s it exploded with the rise of the home video games and mm-hmm. arcades and so just everything became a little and more home video as well now yeah. you could actually buy a movie and watch it at home a hundred times and i don't know how much these things influenced each other but it's just it's all like the action movies became more like video games and the action stars became more like pro wrestlers like it was For no sure. longer that you know your action star was just a guy who's resourceful you know and like maybe in decent shape no your action like, the biggest action stars of the 80s, and, I mean, there are others, but to me, the biggest ones were Stallone and Schwarzenegger. Right. I mean, both these guys were like, no one in the Army looks like these guys. Right, like you, right. It was impossible to look like yeah. those guys unless you spent, you know, six hours a day in the gym, in the gym. every day. Right. So, and in the gym. It's very important to point gym. out. In the gym. Yes, not, not training, actually working. Not, yes, ru- yes. Not, not running, not doing those kind of drills. Yeah. Certainly not training it's out of It's very different. People. I mean, not that those guys weren't strong, Pumping but iron. like, yeah, anybody who's been out in the real world and you've encountered, you know, some of the strongest people you'll ever meet are, you know, like, say, like a guy who works construction who, you know, might have like a decent-sized gut. Yes. You know, like, <laughs> that guy does not look anything at all like Schwarzenegger, but right. that, you know, that can... That'll be a very strong person who got their muscles from doing actual work. Arnold's got a little gut now. So and so does Sylvester Stallone. God bless him. Yeah, just everything became became kind of larger. Yeah, yeah, um, oversized. And 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 also you had guys come into the picture who were unconventional stars as that they were foreign and they were not dubbed, right? So with Arnold, you got Jean-Claude Van Damme. 
you know, and and uh, Dolph Lundgren started yeah. making films right around that time after Rocky IV, certainly. Uh, and it was it's interesting. We're just guys who had very limited uh, acting ability, like Chuck Norris. I mean, let's be yeah. honest. Chuck Norris, I like Chuck Norris's per film persona. He's very mellow. Like he doesn't overact. He doesn't try. He doesn't try to do stuff outside of a sandbox as an actor, and that could be used very effectively. But but I mean, he has no acting ability whatsoever. And and arguably, an even worse example of him is Steven Seagal. Steven Seagal, yeah, as I was like, going to mention, yeah. I mean, talk about like explain Steven Seagal to me. Like Steven, the Aikido is a great martial arts, but why Steven Seagal? Steven Seagal is a terrible actor. He is. Well, let's just say he's not conventionally handsome. Okay, <laughs> let's just say that. From what I understand, he's a world-class douchebag to everybody he works with. Yeah. Uh, and how is this guy a movie star? Like, how did that come about, Steve? Could you explain to me? Believe it or not, Andre, I can. I can, because this is actually another theory I have about uh, action stars, which this, this might have started a little bit in the 70s or maybe even going back to, like, Bruce Lee. But... These action stars will have a little window of time where they're, for lack of a better term, they're the man. Like, you know, like fans of action stars will be like, you know, who kicks ass, and they'll name somebody. Right. And it's, it's interesting. Sometimes we, I don't think we ever did a who has the action star championship belt <laughs> podcast again. But so Steven Seagal. Something to think about. Steven Seagal, at the end of the 80s, from 1988 through 1990, Steven Seagal cranked out a bunch of these action movies that kicked ass. Yeah, they were above the law, hard to kill, marked for death. I don't know about kicked ass. I like the couple of them that Andy Davis directed, yeah. the Chicago filmmaker, and they were Chicago set, set. And there was something different about Seagal. And that difference was being, to me, his on-screen persona being an unabashed asshole. Yeah. Which apparently people wanted to see. But that's but you asked me, that's, that's how Seagal came to be. That Seagal was this guy who was in these... Quite a plane here. Um, Seagal jumped out of a plane. <laughs> uh, Steven Seagal was just in a couple action movies early in his career that were big hits, at least among like action movie fans. So, you know, he he got a lot of cred from that. And similar to Jean Claude Van Damme, started out and um, like Bloodsport. I can't remember some of the other ones, but so they just go through the. They have a little window where they're where they're the man. And uh, that's how we wind up with these things. And sometimes those guys capitalize on it, and it goes on. Like Schwarzenegger is maybe the ultimate example the of ultimate a guy who capitalizer. capitalized on it and then rode that wave for a long time. But Schwarzenegger also pushed the envelope. You know, he expanded. Sure. He he tried to mess with his persona. He he crafted his persona. Seagal, like Seagal's best performance is in his first film. Yeah. Like virtually everything, whatever skill he may have picked up as an actor, is is almost irrelevant to me it's just like his films just get progressively worse and worse and worse and worse and 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 i i seriously of all the action stars he's the one i understand the least <laughs> like his i understand jean claude van damme i understand schwarzenegger definitely understand chuck norris uh but seagal i don't get and there's a hilarious story about seagal which is another reason i don't even understand how he managed to stumble into starring in films which is Steven Seagal apparently got hired as a technical advisor um, 
on a James Bond film, an off-brand James Bond film with Sean Connery playing a 50-year-old James Bond, Never Say Never Again. Not real good, but Sean Connery's real good. And apparently, Seagal was a like a stunt coordinator, fight coordinator, some not a main one, but he was in there. And during one of the fight rehearsals, he broke Sean Connery's arm. <laughs> okay? And apparently, from what I understand, this may be urban legend, but from what I understand, he went on to brag about it on his film resumes as I am known as the guy who broke James Bond's Broke the lead arm. actor's arm. Yeah. No, no, no. He yeah. broke, in his mind, it was James Bond whose arm he broke. Yeah. Where in reality, during what was supposed to be a dance rehearsal, he hurt, seriously injured the star of the movie who incidentally wasn't trying to fight him, was yeah. trying to learn some moves. And and yet this guy was still allowed to star in movies. How did this, <laughs> I don't understand, man. I am outraged. You know, enough. I'm going to I'm going to let Steven Seagal go. God bless him. He's an excellent musician. Just kidding. Uh, and, and and you know, whatever. Mazel tov. Let him do as he as he will. But uh, but again, you have kind of unusual action heroes and right in there we have to mention or at least I have to mention Eddie Murphy, because Eddie Murphy had two successful action franchises in 48 Hours oh, that's an in- and Beverly Hills Cop. That's an interesting concept about, like, yeah, like, are those movies, are they more action than comedy, or are they, they're kind of, they're a, a perfect blend of the two of them? Yeah, I think Beverly Hill, Hills Cop is actually a perfect blend of those two genres. It's, it's, both, it's both funny and totally action-packed. Yeah, but, like, you could see Beverly Hills Cop being labeled, like, if you were, like, if you're in the, you remember rental stores, Andre. It's still like this in the library, but you're like, where is Beverly Hills Cop? What, uh, what genre is it filed under? Well, I think so action comedies is, is a genre that existed in Hollywood <laughs> before. Yeah. Not going to deny that, but not quite like that. Action comedy is very, very different the way Beverly Hills Cop does it than the way, like, John Wayne would do it, you know? Yeah, sure. So, so... Yeah, you got to give some respect to Beverly Hills Cop and uh, and Beverly Hills Cop too. They were consistently decent, not great. Yeah, but, but well, but and huge hits. I huge mean, Eddie hits. Murphy was uh, up there with Schwarzenegger of like one of the biggest stars of the eighties. Absolutely. And uh, where he came from, you know, like he was, he was literally unknown in the year nineteen eighty. Yeah. And it then was an by overnight nineteen ninety, he's. A gigantic he's, star. He's a yeah. gigantic star, and absolutely, and the movies are breaking in money. And he was completely convincing because, you know, remember Eddie Murphy, we think of him as a comedian, and he was a popular stand-up comedian, but he's also an actor. He can actually he act. He can, yeah. And he was quite convincing as this street-smart guy who's not muscle-bound but knows how to handle himself, and it worked. You know, it connected with the people. He wasn't. He didn't strike me as unrealistically playing a tough Detroit cop. Correct. Except only in that he was a little young, but yeah. it worked, you know, and it was great. And those movies are good, especially 48 Hours. Again, I got to come back. Another 48 Hours, not so good, but 48 Hours, so good. So friggin' good. Uh, and, um, well, I tell you, but, like, for me, the quintessential ones are Lethal Weapon and Die Hard. Yeah. I mean, and that's like, who was the producer on those? Joel Silver? Sure. 
Joel Silver, that guy sort of took the action genre to the next level in the 80s with those two films. Lethal Weapon came out first, and that's your basic body, buddy comedy movie, right? It kind of takes the concept that's yeah, so well developed. Yeah, very much in the buddy comedy world, yes. <laughs> yes, and now, it, and instead, instead of, you know, having racist cop, black con, you have conservative older black cop and crazy-ass loose cannon young white cop who's not at all racist yeah played by mel gibson well and <laughs> um that's the other thing about the 80s buddy cop formula like you know there were buddy cop movies before then but before the 80s i want to say the buddy cop movie was usually the cops were a little bit more similar and if there was like a black cop and a white cop that was usually like it was a drama like in the heat of the night or something right, like right. that but then the 80s, it became almost like the formula sometimes is that you'd have like the black cop and the white. Sure, sure. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, Lethal Weapon is very much part of all that. And um, Lethal Weapon, an unabashed R movie, too. Oh, like yeah. It's, oh, absolutely. It very much committed R. to rated R, to rated Rness. It's got nudity, it's got drugs, it's got really bad violence. I, I think it's, I don't know if it's the beginning. Of the 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 torture fetish that Mel Gibson has written into <laughs> his contract, apparently, because it, he did get tortured ahead. in in I think both Mad Max and Road Warrior. He's so, a tortured guy. Yes, yes, a little bit. But I mean, on screen, it just seems yeah. to be in every film. You know what I mean? Kind of yeah. cool. Yeah, it is. I mean, in a weird Mel way. Gibson was one of our first actors that, I mean. I know, and in, in going back to Rambo, Sylvester Stallone, there's like a torture sequence. But Mel Gibson was always, part of his action moviness was like, there's always scenes of him in pain. And he's very into like showing that it's not just indestructible. Like, you know, he wants to, I mean, right. that became part of the, the fetish, like you say. Very much. It's, uh, very much. That, was, um, that was actually the different approach that Mel Gibson did bring as an action star, is his insistence on showing that these guys aren't superhuman, they're not above, you know, again, sort of going back to Bond, you know, during the Roger Moore era, Bond wouldn't get his hair messed up. Yeah. He'd, he would just look perfect after fighting five guys. Mel Gibson would look, would get the shit beat out of him by five guys. and But come back and, you know, triumph. Well, Mel Gibson's another one of these guys who started out the 80s, you know, there are a bunch of these guys who were the late 70s, early 80s, started out in these kind of almost be action movies but then kind of ascend through that that like the reputation of these movies even if they weren't huge box office hits they get seen and noticed and then these actors and the directors get elevated mm -hmm. so you know like Mad Max this guy obviously came out of you know the Road Warrior and right. the first Mad Max movie that then they start you know, like the first Mad Max movie, I'm sure, was not like a gigantic worldwide hit, but it was enough of a hit yeah. and seen by people. It was. And like in action fans, it like, had well, a little great. bit of a. It had a little bit of. I remember before the Road Warrior came out, I I watched Mad Max and and uh, thought it. And I remember there being like a like kind of a cultish aura yeah, about it. Exactly. People talked yeah. about it mm -hmm. because again, like things were so much more gentle back in that those days we're, we forget we're so 
We're so immune to hard violence. We forget that movies in the 80s were softer. Like yeah. stuff was a little bit more nuanced and not so in your face. They didn't show very shocking torture or very shocking death. They were a little bit more restrained with that. And Mad Max was a sadistic ass movie. It had yeah. some really fucking sadistic shit in it and really, really jarring shocking violence against children and and stuff like that. So that gave it a little bit of that forbidden fruit vibe. But by the time The Road Warrior came out, the second Mad Max, and this is like now I think 82, well, that's that was just crazy ass because what they did in terms of stunt work in that in those films was amazing and that kind of introduced Mel Gibson and then he did a couple of art films, I think Year of Living Dangerously where he kind of stressed his looks and so forth, the bounty with another remake of the bounty story with Anthony Hopkins, which was very good actually. And uh and boy uh once Lethal Weapon came out, he was pretty much on top of the heap there. You know, instant like he became huge. Absolutely yes. huge. Sexiest man alive, the whole thing. Just a just a nuclear bomb of a star explosion. Um and the Lethal Weapon film was good, I thought. Yeah. But Lethal Weapon 2 is even better. Yeah. And that's that was the cool part. That that series, that second film managing to be better than the first film really kind of cemented both the franchise and Mel Gibson specifically. Yeah, I mean, Lethal Weapon 2 is one of the great, um, you know, it's not the Godfather or anything, but like it, it's just one of the great stories of a movie that, was pretty hyped up and basically delivered on what you wanted from it. Like both, you know, Absolutely. in terms of the quality, the yeah. box office, the audience expectations. Right. Right. That uh, Very satisfying. Too. Yeah, exactly. Like, and but by the time it came out, it was really hyped up. And I will say, like, Lethal Weapon was a big hit, but it was, you know, maybe this is just a little bit my age. It, you know, it wasn't like a Star Wars level hit. It was a yeah. smaller hit, but right. you know, so Lethal Weapon Two, I just recall having like way more hype going into it right because you know people didn't know what the first lethal weapon would be so then after it came out everybody liked it but yeah lethal weapon 2 really just nailed um yeah (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately the weapon 3 was a letdown yeah and then everything afterwards was a letdown sure but that second one was was really really impressive but you know the movie that came out a year after lethal weapon and another joel silver is you know what many people would probably regard as the ultimate action film of the 80s and that's die hard die hard die hard's a strong contender for my favorite action movie of all time um it also comes right in the middle of a great three movie run by uh john mctiernan who uh john mctiernan directed uh, right before Die Hard, he did Predator. Excellent. Which, uh, yeah, we discussed in the Arnold Schwarzenegger pod. And Killer as I, uh, action sci-fi. Yeah, I hadn't seen it in forever and was delighted at how good it was. Like, you were just like, this is great. Um, and then after that, uh, in 1990, which, again, depending on your point of view, is either the last year of the 80s or the first of the 90s, <laughs> was uh, The Hunt for Red October. Right. But just a great run by John McTiernan. And, uh, but Die Hard is great, and Die Hard was extremely influential that... For, I mean, for a decade afterwards, right. a default action movie premise was like, let's take a guy and isolate him. I mean, speed, everybody said, is basically Die Hard on a bus. Speed, well, it was, it was a whole thing. That it was, was a whole idea. It was like, it became like Die Hard on a boat, Die Hard on a circus. This, di- this, yeah, exactly. The, you know, it was just Die Hard was everywhere. It really, 
every it was the shorthand for all sorts of things. I and, know. And Die Hard is fantastic. If you haven't seen it in a while, it's really great. Right. Uh, Bruce Willis is fantastic. Everything's in it. I mean, there's not a bad part of Die Hard. And it also introduced the world to uh, Alan Rickman, who I know I've, I'm sure was acting in other <laughs> things. But, like, I don't know about you. I mean, the first I ever even had heard of Alan Rickman was in Die Hard. Sure. And it's one of, I mean... It's, it's on my short list of the great movie villains of all time. Of yeah. So entertaining. I mean, you know, the joie de vivre or whatever you call that love of performance. Yeah. Not life, but not just life, but performance. Uh, very enjoyable, kind of juicy character that's, that's big and funny and evil. You hate him. You love him. You never tired of him. It's fantastic. And, and also, um, what's great about Die Hard is that that concept, actually, I, I can't recall a movie made earlier that has that concept, which is taking a guy like a tough protagonist and accidentally putting him in the middle of this life-and-death hostage situation where he is the only hope of everybody and he has to overcome. I mean, I don't remember this plot before. Maybe it existed. There's possible there's older movies that are like that. But if there is, I can't think of one. And it made that thing seem so fucking fresh, man. I was just, it was just delightful watching and going, this is great. Well, this is great. And Die Hard came out late 80s, and you know, it was like 88, after maybe we were, as audiences, are starting to tire of some of the action movie tropes of the right. 80s, because it really went against the grain on a lot of that stuff. Like, Bruce Willis is, you know, he's got muscles and he's a cop, but he's not nearly as big as, like, Schwarzenegger or Stallone right. or, or The Rock. You know, well, he's, again, I think he's a much more human size. Sure. And the big, I mean, you know, the whole genius of the movie is that it takes all his tools away from him. Right. He doesn't even have shoes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It completely strips it away. And here, I think we have to, again, give credit to Mel Gibson. Because a year before, Mel Gibson had this very, very human, relatively frail character, or at least psychologically frail, uh, and they try to do the same thing with John McClane and Die Hard. Make him a little bit smaller as the decade was coming around to its end, and we've seen the big muscle-bound characters. Sure. Now, the idea was to have characters that were a little bit more down-to-earth, that you could be genuinely scared for their well-being, even though they are still unstoppable killing machines, essentially. Yes. And that was sort of the pattern, and I think this is where the pattern kind of hits... That's, that's why the action films of the 80s are the best, because that's, to me, that's a pinnacle that's almost never been exceeded. Like, to me, like, it's hard. I cannot think of a better set of films than, like, action, pure action cinema than stuff like Die Hard and Lethal Weapon, Lethal Weapon 2. That, that to me, is kind of the pinnacle of the action sequence. Every, everything since then, maybe there's better films, maybe there's more exciting action, but as far as a mixture of a great American action movies, those, those are them. So, Andre, do you have any uh, under-the-radar movies from the 80s? You, any under-the-radar action movies from the 80s that you think fondly of? Yes, I do. I have a lot of them. All right. Surprise, surprise, surprise. <laughs> well, there, you know... Almost all of the movies we've been talking about so far are relatively 
over-the-top fare, right? I mean, Die Hard is not a paragon of realism. Neither is Lethal Weapon. You know, sure. they're, they're over-the-top. They're big. Uh, but there, there are a couple of films that I think are a little bit less big. And uh, one of my favorite from the 80s is a William Friedkin movie. William Friedkin, of course, the guy who did... The Exorcist. The yeah. Exorcist and The French Connection. And The French Connection, of course, is highly regarded as one of the greatest action sequence-containing yeah. movies. Uh, and um, he made a movie called To Live and Die in L.A., which is uh, one of my favorites. One of my favorites from, from the 80s. An absolute gem of a cop action movie. It's, it's a story about a couple of Secret Service guys on the trail of this legendary uh, counterfeiter. Takes place in L.A., no surprise. <laughs> it starts William Peterson, Chicago's own, yeah. um, in his first starring role, and he's fantastic. And it stars, again, Willem Dafoe, who was just kind of building his reputation, mostly playing bad guys at this time, but yeah. gearing up to play a pretty good guy at some very, very shortly. It's an excellent action film. It's got a fantastic, absolutely fantastic, super influential car chase. Not Maybe not French Connection influential, but pretty damn close. Really, really love that, though, that one. What's yours? You know, a movie, I guess I should have rewatched it before, but I, I, I have a lot of fondness as a kid. I love this movie called Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins oh, with Fred yes, Ward. Fred Ward. And uh, talk about failed IP, because yes. uh, that movie is called, colon, The Adventure Begins. <laughs> the adventure and begins. as far as I know, The Adventure never continued. It never <laughs> continued, no. The Adventure uh, ended rather yeah. sharply. I remember seeing that in the Climax theater. at the Statue of Liberty, I and mean, I remember the box of the uh, the VHS tape had him dangling off. I know, I know, and that was a good sequence, and, and that movie was fun, and it, it you know, it's kind of racist by today's standards sure. because it has Joel Grey play like an old Korean guy. Yes. It seems like it could have at least cast a, you know, a, a, an actual Asian actor. Yeah, it seems yes. like there's plenty of them in Hollywood who could have played that role brilliantly. But they got Joel Grey, and Joel Grey does like a caricature on the level of like, I don't know, Mr. Moto. I mean, like, yeah. like he actually, Mr. Moto is a lot more subtle than, than Joel Grey is. Up in there that with film. some of uh, Mickey Rooney's great oh Asian my performance. God. Yeah, it's right <laughs> on that level. And I think that made the movie. Like, I remember, like, I was a kid, and I liked action movies, and I wasn't sensitive to that kind of thing sure. at all. Couldn't care less. And I was still going, like, what the, why, 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 why do I need this guy in Asian makeup? It's absurd. But Fred Ward was good. Fred Ward and was fantastic. The, the direction was good. Yeah. It was, it was, it had a little bit of a Bond pedigree. Yep. I think Guy Hamilton directed it, a uh, veteran of the James Bond series. And they were definitely trying to... This is a failed franchise, it actually, is. an excellent example of a failed franchise where they, they were hoping to just make a shit ton of these movies, and it just didn't make any money. Yeah. Didn't make any money. Too bad. I, I enjoyed that film as well. Um, I have a soft spot in my heart for Roadhouse. Sure. And I have to... Another Joel Silver It's movie, a Joel Silver, way. but it's kind of a smaller Joel yeah, Silver. Yeah. It's not quite as over the top. It's got Patrick Swayze. Well. Well, no, 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 no. Okay, let me backstep. It's crazy ass over the top, Steve. Don't get me wrong. Okay. It is not set in any world of realism that we're aware of. But what I mean is it's kind of smaller, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's not, it's got a relatively low body count, right? Yes. It's got, it has a lot of dialogue. It's dialogue heavy. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's got philosophy. It's got philosophical conversation. It's got a really fun kind of zen-like character that Patrick Swayze's so good at playing, actually, in retrospect, now that we can look back on his career. Back then, you know, he was just some kid trying to break into action flicks. But the fact is, starting with Uncommon Valor and kind of moving through the 80s, um, doing uh, Red Dawn, which I'm also a big fan of, John Melius, yeah. kind of talk about a paranoid Soviet Cold War film. This is a film about a, literally a Russian invasion of the United States. The United States gets invaded and occupied by Russians, Chinese, Cubans, and whoever else was playing around with communism back then. One of the kind of rare teen action movies, teen too. Teen action movies packed, packed to the gill with young talent guys. Yeah. Like Charlie Sheen, yeah, C. Thomas Howell, and you know, just, just, and a lot, and uh, Jennifer Grey was in a it. Lot of course. Of, a lot of '80s actors did a little time in the the resistance movement of Red Dawn Absolutely. early in their careers. Wolverine, so, right. Remember, yeah, and uh, that movie is. Uh, has mixed uh, a mixed legacy. Some people hate it because it is very in-your-face jingoistic, yeah. very, very right-wing, very pro-gun, uh, and very somewhat cartoonish about showing the Russian invaders. Sure. You know, not particularly deep, deeply thought-out characters on that side, except for one. And yet, yet another movie they tried to remake. Very unsuccessful. Uh, yeah, because tra trading in on the nostalgia of the original movie, but then just like it did, yeah. The, it just didn't work. It didn't well, work. Well, you know, Red Dawn, the original, the only one worth talking about, committed to what it was. Yeah. And people hated it for being such a right-wing movie, and a lot of, you know, critics who then and now lean left would, of, co of course, shat on it. But it's a pretty fun movie. Yeah. Enjoyable, well-constructed. There's drama. Characters are clearly defined. It has a uh, sad but uplifting finale mm -hmm. and some good performances, including particularly Patrick Swayze. But in Roadhouse, Patrick Swayze arguably plays his greatest character, along with another excellent action film of the early 90s, which is Point Break, yeah. of course, where he takes that character to a whole other level. But uh, excellent, fun, enjoyable. Every time I watch it, I kind of like it more and appreciate more of what it's doing. What's your next one? I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know what? Okay, you know what other Please. action movie I have? A, which, again, see, my thing is my the, the movies I have a fond spot for are from when I was, you know, a child, and now I'm sure, like, they're terrible. But uh, a movie I recall watching over and over again was Iron Eagle, the Iron Top Eagle. Gun knockoff, That's which right. was, like, the, the teen version of Top Gun. Came out shortly afterwards, trying to cash in on that. Featuring uh, the great Louis Gossett Jr. Lou <laughs> Gossett. Lou Gossett. He's uh, great. He was great, and those movies were fun. Iron Eagle movies were fun. And uh, who was the star of that? Jason. Lou Gossett Jr., if you ask me. Lou, but, uh, well, Lou Gossett. Uh, he was the mentor figure, of course. Who was the star of that? Patrick. Chicago, Chicago guy. Literally a guy who grew up. I think on the north side, right around where I was from, and I remember they were like, hey, did you hear about that kid? He's the star of Iron Eagle now. And he still has a, he still, you still see Jason him. Jason Gedrick? Jason Gedrick, that's right. You see him in tons, tons of stuff. He does a lot of TV now. Yeah. He's actually a pretty good actor. But yeah, Iron Eagle was fun. Iron Eagle was like Top Gun with lower production values and more action. Yes. Right? That's the thing. So when we were looking at the 80s, you know, you think about, like, well, who are the giant stars of the 80s? And, you know, obviously one of the biggest stars of the 80s 
and, and beyond, but you know, where he got to start was Tom Cruise. That uh, Tom right. Cruise was never in a movie until the 80s, and you just think of Tom Cruise as a giant star of the 80s, and yet all these things we've been talking about, about action, you know, like Tom Cruise did not make a sci-fi movie in the 80s, and the only Tom Cruise movie in the 80s that I think could be filed in the action section of the video store is possibly Top Gun. Possibly Top Gun. Um, which it is Top Gun? Movie. It does. I mean, it's got a lot of. If you haven't seen Top Gun in a while, first of all, Top Gun is great. It is over the top. Uh, there's an actor I follow on Twitter who had never seen Top Gun, and he says he's seen gay porn that is less gay than <laughs> Top Gun is. Um, uh, Top Gun is uh, full of homoeroticism, but in a, in a fun way. And I love it. I, I always laugh. I'm like, you know, I really like the, the locker room scene in Top Gun. Not the second locker room scene or the fourth locker room scene, but the third one, the third of the four locker room scenes is great. Um, they were and, all But Top Gun is a movie of the 80s that it really, it did deliver, I think, on everything it promised you. That yeah. I mean, there are... There's a lot of jets flying in that movie. Oh. Like it's not just once. There's a bunch of that. Uh, you get some. The soundtrack uh, is hammered home. Almost every movie. <laughs> the biggest hits on that soundtrack appear in the movie twice. Like they'll play the song in one scene, and then later on they'll bring play it right it again. back, baby. Bring and, it right uh, back. Top Gun, shot by, you know, it's Tony Scott, Ridley Scott's oh, younger brother, yeah. who was hired, I, I'm told because he had some really slick car commercials. Oh, yeah. And they, so they hired him to make the jets, Ridley, yeah. like shoot the jet like a Lamborghini. Right. Which he did. He did. He did. No, he pulled out all the tricks. It was like, it's great cinematography. The movie looks just freaking great to this day. You watch that movie on a big screen? Yeah. Or like a, like, like a nice, like a yeah. Blu-ray? Jesus, man, it's fantastic looking. Yeah. Everybody looks beautiful i mean it, it's it, it is you know it's kind of military industrial complex porn it certainly is i mean it's and a, also gay porn at the same yes, time yes it's uh and, it's but, a recruiting it's for both the navy right. and uh the village people i suppose and, uh, but uh, yeah and, and america <laughs> and but, america but but i mean but it's good it's got good performances it has a story arc you could identify with it has moving stuff tom cruise you know tom cruise is an up-and-comer in the 80s well you know, he's not a He's not quite a huge star yet. It's really the 90s where he really hits the stride. I, Top Gun made him a superstar. Um, I mean, yeah, there are... I mean, you're right. You're, there you're, are... You know, I don't know the story of how he got cast in that movie. I know he was an up-and-coming young star. I could have to imagine that was a sought-after role. And Tom Cruise, in my opinion, that is the movie where he became a megastar. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, Top Gun know. is great. Yeah, we just showed it to my son the other day. You know, he loved it. It's great. I mean, it's you know, loud rock music and jets and things like that and yeah. hair flowing. It's but got some cheese ball like... jokes. And it's it was great. it was a great theater experience yeah. because seeing that on a big screen, oh man, it's it's fun. And and you know, I really hope that the theaters are back so I could go see Top Gun too, which the previews look pretty fun to that one too. Yeah. Uh, Maverick. Well, you know, again, another attempt to revive the franchise, you know, the problem, you know, well, whatever, it's, it's, it's their problem, not our problem. For me, you know, again, like to go off the beaten path a little bit, but, not, but to somehow not, is to come back to the James Bond series. There were five, five James Bond movies in the decade of the 80s. Wow, that's a there pretty, were, pretty good pace. Yeah, yeah, three Roger Moore films, right? Uh, For Your Eyes Only, the best one of the three. Then Octopussy, the second best one of the three. And uh, 
what was it? What was it called? The View to a Kill. A View to a Kill. Walken, which is terrible. Which is really, really bad. But 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 the great have Duran Duran song too. The Duran Duran song, Christopher Walken and Grace Jones are the best things in that film, but the movie is very is a poor, poor James Bond film. And then of course they were they recalibrated the franchise with uh, Timothy Dalton, who was essentially like Daniel Craig earlier, you know, who basically was Daniel Craig before Daniel Craig. But unlike Daniel Craig, he actually looks like James Bond's supposed to look. But uh, I know he's a he's a dark horse contender for it's almost like the hipster view for people to be like, you know, who my favorite Bond was. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. A lot of people. Now it's not that it's not quite as contrarian as saying my favorite Bond is George Lazenby, yeah, who yeah. made one film in 1969. It happens to be probably the best James Bond film of all, or at least up there. Uh, so he's got a little bit of a edge on that regard, but but yeah, Dalton made a couple of films where they made Bond serious, and again they kind of introduced these elements that started appearing in movies like Lethal Weapon and Die Hard, where the character wasn't quite a superhuman. All of a sudden, you felt like this guy could be injured, this guy could could die. He's genuinely risking his life, which was certainly not a concern with any of the Roger Moore movies, uh, unfortunately. And, and uh, so it was weird to see Bond in that regard, in, in that new light. And those movies were, I think they were a little bit under budgeted. Yeah. And, uh, and I really think that there was frankly too much competition. I also, I always felt a little bad for Timothy Dalton because at the time I remember, I thought Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan looked a lot alike and Pierce Brosnan had more name recognition. So when you heard you know, you'd see the picture and be like, oh, you see the new Bond? And you're like, oh, is it Pierce Brosnan? And you're like, no, it's, it's this other guy. His name's Timothy Dalton. And he got two chances, and then they just literally replaced him with Pierce Brosnan. Exactly, exactly. Well, he was a replacement for Pierce Brosnan. Pierce yeah. Brosnan was basically cast, and then he had his TV contract from Remington Steel. Oh, I didn't know that. Prevented so him from doing so they, the So they got the, uh, the poor man, Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, it's, so essentially they went to Dalton, who... You know, they, they were looking at years earlier, and Dalton was a, you know, respected stage actor. Yeah. And Dalton was a good Bond occasionally. He was just very uneven. He gave an uneven performance yeah. that was occasionally a little hammy. It just felt like a, a stage, Shakespearean stage actor trying to play James Bond, and it just, I don't think it connected. Yeah. There were a lot of issues there. I think those movies age actually okay. Yeah. I think Dalton's films are. He's just, also he's bigger, you know, like he's a large physical he's, guy. He's, like he's kind of taller and. Yeah, yeah, he was probably the tallest guy to play James Bond, and. Uh, well, I, I mean, as a forerunner of, you know, I know Sean Connery looked like a guy who could actually fight you, but yes. you know, like Roger and, Moore and did, did did not. Did not. No. And uh, and seeing Pierce Brosnan was, you know, more on the Playboy side of things, but then Daniel Craig obviously looks like a guy who could fight. Right, you. right. D Daniel Craig had had an. Definitely has a probably the most physical presence of all of those guys, but in terms of the attitude toward the, like his his take on the character, it's very similar to what Dalton did. Yeah. It's just possible that Dalton did it a little too early. The audience wasn't quite ready for that yeah. approach yet. It was too jarring, maybe from the Roger Moore era. And I still and I still say there was too much competition. You can you know you you cannot when you make a lower end James Bond film, it's not going to compete against Die Hard. Yeah, it's going to seem like your grandpa's movie. 
and that I think was the problem, even though those movies still made a goodly amount of money. But you know what I'm saying. Like the, the action cinema became so slick that it outpaced James Bond and there, there you had it. And so they basically had to reboot the whole thing, wait like six years and just start the whole thing over in a much more flashy, over-the-top way, which is what they did with uh, Pierce Brosnan yep. ultimately. And, and it was successful. But, you know, again, paying, paying homage to Bond. But honestly, I got to say, though, I think my number one is still Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, sure. I think that's my number one favorite action film, maybe of all time. Because it's, a ga- it's I mean, game changer. When you talk about game changer, that's a game changer, right, Steve? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess I could maybe argue Die Hard, to me, seemed more of a game changer. But, you know, I don't yeah, know I disagree. that... I disagree. I think I, what the game changer in Raiders of the Lost Ark is the amount of action per film. There was never... Oh, I see. Yes. Never a more action-packed movie than Raiders of the Lost Ark prior to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Since then, sure. Before that, and also the way it was paced and the way it was cut, the cuts on it, like movies were much more luxuriously paced before Raiders. Raiders changed the way filmmakers approach action filmmaking. They literally changed the way action movies are edited, the way they're staged, the way they are paced overall. Uh, and that's where I think the game changer is, and that's where I think Raiders deserves that nod. And, of course, that was just built built up in the sequels. Sure. To varying levels of success. But the sequels were great, right? I mean, the Indiana Jones movies are consistent. The three of they them. They are pretty. The I mean, uh, you know, I will say, watching them again recently, the they are all good. They're, they're not shittier at all, but uh, Temple of Doom is a weird one because, I mean, first of all, it's pretty racist. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, um, you know, uh, it's a lot of racial elements <laughs> in that. Well, and also, the middle section of Temple of Doom is really dark. Um, I mean, the story of that, of course, is that that is George Lucas's divorce movie. Like, that's his version of it. <laughs> that at the time, he was going through a pretty bitter divorce, so he wrote this nasty you know, this movie that involved child torture and things like that and hearts getting ripped out. And supposedly what was funny is when they were making that movie that uh, Steven Spielberg would sometimes clash with him over the tone. I mean, they were friends, but, you know, Spielberg was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going through a bitter divorce. So yeah. this seems a little dark. Next year, though. Yeah, that's right. Um, so Temple of Doom has is the most objectionable to me of, like, it's got bad parts to it. Yeah. The other thing about Temple of Doom, I always say, speaking of Spielberg and his wife, is, uh, I mean, I don't know how else to say that. Kate Capshaw is terrible in that movie. I mean, fan. just, ugh. And, I mean, the, the role does her no favors. I mean, you could argue it's as much on the page as her performance, but, I mean, just the epitome of, like, shrieky and annoying and... Right. Like, how did they come up with that character after the awesome Marion? Marion, Marion, a woman who is like, you know, very much the whole point of the character, someone who can hold her own. You know, like, I mean, we see her, the first time we meet her, she's literally drinking someone else out under the table. And uh, and then the the love interest in the second movie is, uh, you know, incapable of doing almost anything. Like, she can't, even when, like, I mean, there are jokes about, 
you know, the thing with the bugs where it's like, listen, we will die unless you do something that won't hurt you. Right. It's just distasteful to you. And the woman's like, I don't know if I can do it. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, the, but then it was irritating. It still she has, was actively irritating. It still and got some great parts. It was irritating to yeah. me. I found oh, the kid irritating. Short, short round? round oh. Not a fan. Yeah. I loved short round, but again, I could, at the time, I could relate. Well, at the time, I mean, now I watch it and I don't hate short round. Yeah. I, I found myself disliking him when I watched the movie, and I dislike the concept of a indie sidekick, too. I dislike that. I am like, I didn't understand why Indiana Jones, this swashbuckling historian, needs a friggin' 10-year-old kid to friggin' bail him out of situation. Like, I didn't understand the nature of that relationship. Yeah. What happened there? What is going on? And, and you know, and it's very much to uh, Harrison Ford's credit is he made that relationship kind of believable. Right, and he made it because that kid can't act. I mean, yeah. he's just a kid, you know. So, and but you're right. Out of the three Indiana Jones movies, that is the worst one. But it's still got it's got great set pieces. The opening thing is great. You know, the the chase on the uh, the mine cars is great. I mean, there's tons just, of great action, yeah. fun, and some of it is funny. Some of the stuff, even with with the Kate Capshaw, is is not terrible. But of course, they bring it all back around in. The Last Crusade, yes, and with a brilliant casting of Sean Connery as the Indiana Jones uh, actual father, but also the sort of ideological father of Indiana Jones yeah, being James yeah. Bond. You know, so so they kind of tie it beautifully. I love the relationship between those two guys. It's believable. I like the way they hate one another. Uh, I like everything else. I like the settings. I like the, the Vienna sequences. I like Allison Duty a lot. I think she's beautiful and interesting. And they, you know, she's the opening bit with the young Indiana character. Jones is young great. Indi- you know? Love it. Absolutely yeah. love it. With with River Phoenix, fantastic. It just it's just great. I I love the Last Crusade almost as much as I love uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. But again, talk about but a fairly consistent action series like you cannot you can say okay lethal weapon one and lethal weapon two are good die hard one and die hard two are good but then you know but with Indy, they kind of nailed the landing until the last one (laughs) (laughs) well spielberg's an interesting guy because no one ever talks about him as like one of our great action directors and yet oh my god you know like he's some of these really memorable action sequences and movies some of the most your favorite action uh, sequences ever, are really? from, yeah, Spielberg. Well, dude, I mean, yeah. the, the the Normandy beach invasion uh, from Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. At the end of the day, may end up being the greatest action scene of all time. Yeah, and uh, even uh, his buddy George Lucas, I will say. George Lucas, there's a lot to critique his direction, but George Lucas is actually a decent director of action. Like, you know, some of the... F- Think about Star Wars, even like the fighter jet battles, and then in the prequel movies, which... You know, I'm not going to sit here and defend the prequel movies, but the best part about the prequel movies were some of the battles. Sure. Like, you know, or staged really well. There's a battle between the Emperor and Yoda, which is pretty good. Right. And there's yeah. like... The, well, the duels, you know, yeah, the, more the lightsaber but, stuff, but also... But the, the duels, but then also some of the... Space The, stuff. the space stuff, yeah. That, yeah. like, Lucas actually had a handle on some of those sure. things. And, Absolutely. um it's, Yeah, Lucas was better, ultimately, by the time he got to the prequel, I think he was better at that stuff than he was at just Norse. He's still just, yeah, he's a, not a good director of humans. That's <laughs> right. the problem, yeah. Credit must be given to Steven Spielberg for 
somewhat elevating the action genre. Well, not somewhat. I mean, pretty significantly elevating the action genre with the Indiana Jones film. And it, it really opened up the door to a lot of 80s action cinema, in my opinion. You know, where people cared about production quality and just taking their time with action. I find that a lot of action scenes prior to the 1980s were filmed in either a dull way that relied very heavily on stunt performers mm -hmm. uh, or were over-edited, which was really just a trick to hide the stunt performers. <laughs> and somehow with Raiders and other great films that we've talked about this episode, the genre just elevated on a technical perspective enormously. And, um, you know, what can you say? We've, you know, now we got John Wick and, you know, Mission Impossible series that really has kind of built on that since then. So sure. the action genre continues and will will continue to continue because people love, love their action. People love action. That's, I mean, the thing about the action genre, and I don't, this may be unique. I, I would say maybe this is true of horror too, but like I'm kind of a medium action fan. Like I mean, I, I like action movies, but uh, I, I I need the movie to be good. Like right. I, I'm not a big, I'm not one of those guys where I have a bunch of friends who are like, they'll watch a movie because it has like two good fight scenes in it, right. and the rest of the movie's shit. The acting's bad, but they don't care. They're like, I just want to watch. And friends of mine who are really into action movies, they just enjoy action movies so much that they need it similar to sports. And I remember uh, being in college and um, there was like The Last Boy Scout or something. There was an action movie that was coming out like either late August, early September, right around when the colleges were Scout. starting. Oh, that was a that was a, one of the missteps. Of yeah, the well, but so these movies were coming out and, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, you can probably figure it out that Again, non-COVID times. Movies that come out late August, early September, that is a burial ground for movies. Like, if your movie, if that's when it comes out, that usually means that the studio thinks your movie's shitty and they're going to just try and get whatever they can get out because it's not a good movie. If your movie was better, they'd release it in, like, July. Or if your movie was, like, a serious drama, they'd release it in, like, late September, October. But that's a burial ground. But my friends were like, you know... I think we're going to go see this movie. It's going to be bad. I don't care. I'm just ready for another action movie because I haven't seen an action movie in six weeks, and I'm ready for it. So if there's a new action movie at the multiplex, bam, bam. And um, so maybe horrors like that too, but action that's got, you know, it, it waxes and wanes a little bit about how big a hit, but there's just kind of always a baseline of people who like action movies. Right, right. Right, and of, course, and of course, a lot of the modern franchises are essentially action movies. I mean, most superhero movies are action movies, right? Yeah. And more so that genre is so friggin' prevalent now that it's taken over what we consider action. But I like the old, like, bone-crunching, you know, like, real people without superpowers doing action-y stuff. I love <laughs> that. I just, I don't know. I still enjoy that. And I'm not, like yourself, I'm not going to excuse a shitty movie that happens to have some good action scenes. But when a f good action film is constructed against some genuinely good action, man, that's good stuff. It I, is. I would, like, I don't, you know, we, we haven't done a lot of recommendations outside of the 80s, but definitely 
you should see all the films we've spoken about, especially some of our favorites, Raiders. I'm sure you've seen most of them. But if you haven't seen something like 48 Hours in a While or Red Dawn or To Live and Die in L.A., check them out. Yeah. They're, they're friggin' great. But my favorite action movie of the last, like, maybe year or so is this movie that's on Netflix called Extraction, which is a made-for-Netflix action movie starring Chris Hemsworth. It's got excellent action. It has some heart. It has an exotic locale. It takes place, like, in Indonesia or something like that. And, uh, and um, you know, it's about this guy trying to rescue a kidnapped uh, kid, and action ensues. Yeah. Um, it's very good. It's very exciting. The action, like, takes it to the next level. Uh, there's some really, really excellent sequences that are, like, I'm still wondering how they film them, but they pull it off. And uh, if you like just pure action cinema, highly recommend that one. Netflix, Extraction. Uh, but that's all I got on the action film, Steve. Yeah, I think uh, we're pretty much covered on this. So uh, we'll, we'll be back again next week with uh, some more talk of the films of the 80s. Or more action-packed film talk on Film Driven. I'm Andre Shane. I'm Steve Haskin. See you next time. Never